I've laid out the landscape and it's pretty bleak. Yeah, I got a couple questions based on that. I mean, I think the biggest question that that comes to mind for me is this you you've laid out a potential pathway wherein Alberta could um access bitumen for products still i'll say um there's 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 a pathway where industry could still be pulling bitumen out and and doing stuff with it i guess the the question that i find myself asking is uh and and i kind of tried to get at this earlier is is why would they i mean we're, we're talking you just finished uh, a, a, a pretty extensive commentary on the moral leanings of uh, a lot of these oil and gas companies. I mean, the fact that there's stuff like liability dumping going on, there's very clearly a pursuit within these companies for what's going to give us the easiest money, the quickest. And that's understandable because they do have a, you know, sorry, a fiduciary duty to their, their shareholders. So if, you know, there's, there's clearly a pathway to still using the, the bitumen for other products, but it seems like the window to be able to do that and have any kind of financial return is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And the, the question that I find myself left with is, why would these oil companies who, or, or energy companies or whatever we wanna call them, why would they invest in these sorts of things, in this sort of product development, to the scale that would be required to replace the void that's going to be left if your projections around the the transition are anywhere near accurate why why would they do that why don't they just go down to to somewhere where you can get oil cheaper or other forms of energy cheaper and more reliably and say so long alberta thanks for all the fish boy uh your question begs a a, a lot of uh, well the question has a lot of answers. A lot of that, that particular onion has a lot of layers to it. So I want to take a couple of cracks at this. One of them is, and, and this is fascinating. So if you and I have a liability, like if we have a debt, we have a car loan, we have to pay that liability somehow, right? You got to pay off the loan, you got to pay the bank, you got to whatever. If you're an oil company, you don't look at it that way. You're, 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 you know, un, un, reclaimed well sites and and other infrastructure imagine now once a year when the, during the budgeting process for an oil company all the vice presidents come in sit around the table talk they're talking they're setting their budget and you know the vice president of drilling says we want to if we drill if you put in x amount of millions of capital into drilling the return on your investment will be this x and the other vice president says, well, if you put money into uh, building pipelines, the return on it is going to be X. And then the, cl the, the closure and liability guy gets up and he says, well, we have, we have liabilities of X hundreds of millions and we need 5 million or 10 million or whatever to close some wells. And the CEO looks at him and says, okay, but how's that going to generate revenue? Yeah. How's that going to make income? How, how do we, how do we, how do we, uh, how does that improve our return to our shareholders? 
if we give you that money. And the point that gets made over and over again uh, when I talk to experts is that inside oil companies, the various uses of capital have to compete. And if, and if, if, if the very other vice presidents are bringing forward uh, uses for that capital that will provide a return to shareholders and closure and liability is a cost, you lose. They lose and they don't get funded. That's a problem. That's a big, that's the way the oil industry looks at it. And that's one of the reasons why they try to get out from underneath their liabilities by selling their, their wells and so on. Okay, so that's, that's one. Now, the question is, why wouldn't the oil companies pick up and move? Well, some of them have. I mean, on the conventional side, you've got Ovintiv, used to be um, the Alberta Energy Company, or, you know, uh, it was Crown Corporation at one time, and it took off and I think it moved to Texas. But the oil sands companies have taken a different route. And, and this is the thing that's, that's poorly understood by its critics, is that in, in a well, like if you have conventional well or a shale well, you have to continually replenish your production by drilling new wells. That takes capital. It's not like that in, a, in the oil sands. At the oil sands, it's like a manufacturing plant. You build the plant, right? The resource is there. It's there to be had. You just need to build a plant to get at it. And once you've spent that capital, the amount of capital that you require and your cost per barrel is quite low. So you have a low decline rate on your resource. You have your upfront capital has been, has been paid for. And your sustaining capital, the stuff you have to spend every year to maintain things, is very low. And the break-even now in West Texas intermediate in, in American dollars for oil company, uh, oil sands companies is around 30 to 45 dollars a barrel going down because they're going to drive costs down further, a lot of it by laying off workers, I might add. They're going to drive it down to the mid-20s to the low 30s. That's a competitive barrel. So the oil sands is a very, very unique resource that as long as prices stay even you know, above $50 a barrel, they're making good money. That's why they don't get up and move away. And they have very, very specialized expertise, right? You, you couldn't take a, well, maybe you could take a, a, a you know, an oil sands uh, engineer and put him in, a, in Texas to work on shale wells, but I don't think so. I mean, these guys, this is very specialized. There's, there's really the only resource like it is in Venezuela. And, and so this is, that's why the Canadian companies have grown and, and, and are acquiring, you know, more assets and expanding all the time is because they now have the expertise to produce bitumen very, very cost effectively. And what they've done, and this gets to the other point that you made, Nate, is they have all, and, I, and I've interviewed uh, oil company uh, people who have confirmed this, they uh, use, uh, they, they model their competitiveness out to 2050, right? So they, they have an economic model and they plug in their assumptions and then can we compete or can't we compete? And all of the big companies, and which all of them are oil sands related, and some of them have conventional production as well. All of them have modeled, they can be competitive in 2050, even at, they say, 25 barrels a day, a million barrels a day of production. So the companies are looking at that and they're going, our best return to our shareholders 
is to get better and better at what we do best, which is produce a barrel of bitumen for a very low cost. And, you know, investing in wind and solar, investing in these other kinds of clean energy technologies, like you, you see the European majors do, super majors, they're not interested in that at all. They have one focus and one focus only. Suncor, to their credit, uh, has been, they've invested in some of the, you know, like Enercam and, and all sorts of these little startups, uh, you know, but that's $50 million here and a hundred million dollars there. I mean, that's, that's, you know, that's the coffee fund in the, in the executive lounge for these guys. Uh, but their focus, all of their focus is on producing bitumen, more of it at a lower cost per barrel out to 2050. That's their singular focus. So, so the, the two things that I want to clarify there then is we're talking about two, and I'm, I'm really oversimplifying, I totally get that, but we're effectively talking about two different industries at this point because we're talking about oil sands production and then everything else. And so it's the, it's the everything else that's going to cause us all of the problems if I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly. Well, okay. So here's the now. This is a this is a this is a debate because economists don't agree on this. The industry and their critics don't agree on this. And uh, I've always assumed that because the oil sands has such a competitive advantage within the 10.5 million barrels of uh, a heavy crude global market, right? Like they they are very competitive. So. Uh, and you and for the most part, this is not 100% true, but for the most part, you can't substitute light sweet crude for for ultra heavy sour crude. Like right? the 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 refineries uh, are very different. The the ones uh, processing uh, uh, the bitumen uh, have to be you have to spend about a billion dollars to out uh, to upgrade their kit and and put in other equipment to allow you to do that. So th they don't they won't switch over to light sweet crude just because, you know, it goes down in price. They prefer the, the heavy. So anyway, I always assume that the, uh, the oil sands producers were probably going to be competitive in well into the thirties because they had this very unique market and that the conventional producers who make light sweet crude, but everybody makes light sweet crude. You know, the, the U S produces probably, uh, I think they produce 11 or 12 million barrels a day of it. So where is the competitive advantage for Alberta conventional producers? That was my thinking. But then a couple of weeks ago, the Canadian Energy Regulator brought out its, its uh, 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 Canadian Energy Futures 2023, where they did some net zero modeling. And they argue that, in fact, the conventional production will, will actually increase a little bit. And they think the oil sands will go down. So... I need to take a little closer look at that. But I mean, these guys, you know, these are smart ec economists, right? Uh, but so the point I'm trying to make here is that none of this is certain. We all have a different point of view, you know, uh, depending on the assumptions behind your modeling, behind how you think about uh, the energy transition, how you think about the different oil markets. Uh, we, we have some ideas about where the future might go. The big trends the big trends, I think, are well established, you know, towards re renewables and 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 away from fossil fuels. But within that, those trends, how Alberta will will compete, what what will make the grade, what won't make the grade, all of that is going to be volatile and uncertain. But here's the thing: volatility is really bad for the oil industry. 
right? So in, in uh, part one uh, of Unethical Oil, I quote Donnie Bobasil. Now, Donnie is a veteran oil guy. He's probably my age. And he's, you know, he and his team, uh, you know, you have a, in, in the industry, you have teams where you have a, a CEO and a CFO and an engineer and a geoscientist, and they go on and they do different projects. And he says, it, lately, it has it's become clear there is no more capital for us to do oil and gas projects. Only the most select teams now have access to capital. It's completely dried up because there's too much uncertainty. Who wants, who wants to invest in, in oil and gas production, tie up your capital for five years or 10 years uh, when you can get a bit higher return somewhere else? And, and, and then there are all the other things like you know climate policy regulations. Uncertainty is driving capital out of the oil and gas industry. So that's, that's a big problem. And, and the volatility around, uh, around that's going to be created by the energy transition, are prices going to be $50? Or are they going to be $80 a barrel or $100 a barrel? We don't know that. And so the, this is the time now when things are uncertain, but the trends are, are observable. We, we know what they, the long-term trends are, is to make the change. Because, you know, if you're, if you're going to depend on your provincial budget and if you're going to plan, depend on you know, big-time employment in Alberta and you're going to depend on, you know, rural municipality tax bases, all of that kind of stuff, and you're going to try to, you know, clean up some of these oil and gas wells, good luck to you, Alberta. It's going to be a tough road to hope. Well, that's what I'm kind of wondering about. And the question, the, the next question that I wanted to ask is you're talking about oil, sorry, the oil sands companies um, projecting that they're going to be good till 2050 with oil barrel prices very low, 20 to 30 bucks, like you said. How much of, are, let, me, let me phrase the question this way. Are you aware of any inclusion in those projections to deal with the quarter trillion dollars of uh, liabilities that are going to exist in oil and gas because of all of those inactive and orphaned wells? No, and, and that brings me to a point that I wanted to make earlier and I forgot. And that is this. Uh, there's a, it's well established, uh, uh, nobody will disagree with this, I don't think, that the big public companies, you know, the Suncors, the Synovus, the CNRLs, the Imperial Oils, they put a lot of effort into being regulatory compliant. Regulatory compliance is a big, big thing. If you're that kind of a company, you follow the law because the consequences for you, it's not just that, you know, you might get your wrist slapped by the regulator, but if you're not careful, you're going to wind up being an unemployed CEO because investors want nothing to do with companies that are regularly breaking the law in a serious way. So regulatory compliance is a really, really big deal. And the, and the, but the companies will not, they absolutely will not, as a general rule, reclaim, spend money reclaiming and cleaning up liabilities voluntarily. They will spend the money if you make them spend the money with regulation. If you pass a regulation, and this is what the UCP did. I mean, you know, let's, let's give uh, uh, Danielle Smith credit for this. Uh, she brought in this uh, inventory reduction program and there's a mandatory spend and now the industry has to spend seven or eight hundred million dollars a year cleaning up these these liabilities 
and and they will do it and they're already doing it in fact they spent last year they spent 600 million which was 40 percent over what they were required to spend but they did it because they want to be in compliance with the regulations so the only solution to this is a regulatory solution the problem is that in order to fix the problem properly to avoid the crisis we've been talking about is you need a response that is in the billions maybe in the maybe 10 billion tens of billions every year and the industry will not tolerate that they'll tolerate you know between all of the companies six seven eight hundred million dollars a year but if you ask them to, to spend 10 billion dollars that would get incredibly incredible pushback there's no way a conservative government, which is, you know, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here to say tightly integrated with or tightly tied to the oil and gas industry. And so what you have, the solution to this is our star. That this is this is the 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 this is why our star. And this is Danielle Smith's proposal that she brought in in 2021 when she was lobbying for the, the Alberta Enterprise Group. Our star would be $20 billion worth of credits that would cost the government $6 billion in foregone revenue. But the, the number is not the important thing here. It's the moral hazard. And this, this is a, an idea that I was introduced to by uh, Professor Mike, or, uh, Martin Olashinsky, a, a law professor at the University of Calgary. It's that once this is a very there's the polluter pay principle which says that if you pollute you pay to clean it up so if the government says you know what we're going to volunteer and we're going to pay for private companies environmental liabilities you violate the polluter pay principle and you create a moral hazard where you do it once you'll do it again and what oil company executive looking at that going oh okay well we got six billion dollars uh you know towards what are we going to get next week what are we going to get next year right and then you've opened the pandora's box and then you can't put it back you can't close it again that is the that's what's evil about our star is it violates the polluter pay principle and it will put us on a slippery slope that Alberta will, the taxpayer, you and your viewers, Nate, will be paying and paying and paying and paying for decades. Because so to be clear, when you, yeah. when, when you said the solution is our star, you didn't mean the solution is our star. You meant it was Daniel Smith's solution. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what I meant. So sorry okay. if I, there was any uh, confusion over that. I just wanted to make sure because I could see the DMs coming in already and we haven't even released this thing. Um, the, the, the next question that I have for you then, um, it, it's, it's, quite the, it's quite the conundrum you've set up there because, well, not you've set up, but you've explained there. Because the only way to deal with the environmental disaster that we're sitting on is through an increase in regulatory compliance because the oil and gas companies aren't going to be like, oh yeah, we'll totally clean our rooms, mom. Um, there are no governments that are willing to go toe to toe with the um, 
the, the oil and gas companies to bring in the sort of regulatory compliance that's required to um, resolve this situation. Not the choice words I wanted to use, but I'm trying to decrease my use of profanity. Um, so I don't really like, that's not great. Because there's there's no it, it it seems like what you're what you're describing is there are some optimistic solutions there are some optimistic ways that potentially the the oil sands could go towards to to maintain their revenue and sort of to diversify their products but when it comes to the the question of the overall revenue for the province and it comes to the question of the the environmental catastrophe that we're sitting on. Um, we're pretty much screwed. Alberta, uh, if it follows the path it's on now, is pretty much screwed. Uh, it won't be screwed next week or next year, but in the very near future. And one of the things we haven't talked about yet is regulatory and cultural capture. So this is, uh, I did an interview with Professor Jason McLean of the University of New Brunswick. He's a law prof there and a, an expert in regulatory capture. And he says uh, uh, regulatory capture is when the regulator, not just in oil and gas, could be in electricity, could be in anything else, is when the regulator puts the, the corporate interest, the industry interest before the public interest. So you see all the time, you know, that, uh, for instance, uh, electrical utilities, uh, you know, have are pretty friendly with the with the regulator. Because they they swap they swap staff and for a whole bunch of reasons, but in Alberta, Alberta puts such a premium on uh, growing the industry and keeping the industry profitable that it actually set up its regulatory uh, system to be deliberately captured. And like Texas and and other states that are you know very hep that have a big oil and gas industry it also becomes culturally captured. So, you know, Janet Brown, right? From the, yep. the pollster, very, very uh, well-respected pollster. Did an interview with her a couple of years ago and her colleague, John Santos. And the data shows that over half of all Albertans identify with the oil and gas industry so deeply that their very identity is tied up in it. They are oil and gas. And so when there's an attack, on oil and gas, they see it as an attack on them personally. Over half of all Albertans. That's how Kenny like, Well, you know, and it's how and it's how Rachel Notley lost in 2023, in my opinion. Right? If you don't have a message for those folks around your competency to manage the the oil and gas industry and general create jobs, et cetera, et cetera, then nobody's going to elect nobody's going to elect your party to run to form government you know, not willingly. So, so here's uh, the point I want to make here, uh, Nate, is that the, the regulator is captured. The, the Albertans are captured. The politicians are captured. The government is captured. And then they've been captured for so long that nobody questions it anymore. Like if you're, if you, if, if, you know, if you if you said, you know, oil and gas should be phased out tomorrow in downtown Alberta, you'd probably be lynched. We'd never find your body. Right? 
you're not wrong. Well, look, I mean, you could go to you could go to some of the the more trendy bars in downtown Alberta and say that, and I know they wouldn't find your body. Okay, so this is the problem, you know, is there's no political will whatsoever to make the significant changes that are required to address the crisis that I've described today. The, the oil companies won't do it voluntarily, but follow the money. The, the, there, because of the uncertainty around the energy transition, oil companies now give 75% and some, some of them more than that of their free cash flow back to investors. Because if you don't give them, basically start giving capital back to them, they will, they will shut off the taps to what is a very capital intensive industry. And they will desert your stock. And the next day you will be a fired CEO. So they, that's their first priority. They, got, they have to give capital back to investors in the form of higher dividends and share buybacks. Uh, so, the second, uh, le just let me finish this thought. Yep. So the second priority is being regulatory compliant for reducing emissions. Because Danielle Smith and Brian Jean can argue all they want about, uh, uh, they can argue against an oil and gas emissions cap, but the fact is the federal government has constitutional authority and they can bring it in. Now we'll see if they've got the, you know, the political cojones to do that, but everybody expects that they will. And so the other, other priority for the industry, oh, and I should also mention that there are already very tentative efforts in the oil and gas markets to start to price carbon the price emissions intensity in a barrel of oil. And, you know, Alberta has very high emissions intensity. Okay, so that's the second thing that they're investing in. There's no money left. There's no capital left inside the company, no revenue left, no income left for them to spend on a major reclamation or, you know, cleanup of oil and gas liabilities on the conventional side. There just isn't. And then on top of that, you know, the, the juniors companies are failing left and right. We're seeing some intermediate companies that have failed. There's fewer and fewer companies all the time and more and more, you know, de facto orphan wells. So where in that scenario is a ray of sunshine? I can't find it. Well, this is this is the question that I wanted to, to, to sort of ask, ask you. Um, because one of the one of the things I was chatting with a friend a couple of days ago, and we started talking about the whole idea of carbon capture and reduction. And it seems to me that this was the, the biggest political pitch that both parties whiffed on in a huge way during the last election. Because, and this is where I'm going to ask you to tell me if, if my understanding is right or wrong. My understanding is when it comes to carbon capture, there's a couple steps. First, they got to capture the carbon. So largely we're talking about the, the big places that the carbon comes out of. I'll use the word factories because I'm lazy. Um, but you've got the places that produce the carbon. You have to pull the carbon out of the, the, the smokestacks, if you will. But then you got to put it somewhere. And what's been explained to me is that 
there's two steps to putting it somewhere. The first step is you got to move it. And the second step is you got to find somewhere to store it. And there's different ways and different places to store it. One of the things that, that was introduced to me as an idea is the idea of, well, you've got all of these empty wells, just stuff the, the carbon dioxide down there and it'll, it'll be fine. I don't know how much truth there is to that, but, um, zero truth. Okay, perfect. Um, but it's, you know, there's, there's, if oil and gas is going to be sustainable, particularly if the federal government brings in regulations, there's going to have to be a bigger conversation around carbon capture and storage. And to me, because of the infrastructure that's required to move all of that stuff in the different places it needs to go, there is the opportunity for some pretty major infrastructure projects, which to me, if I'm a politician, thank God I'm not, but if I'm a politician, I'm looking at that and I'm going, hey, you know what, we need to build this whole infrastructure thing in order to make this carbon capture and storage thing work. So, you know what? We're gonna put all the welding trucks back to work. The, the government of Alberta is going all in on carbon capture and storage. We're gonna subsidize the holy hell out of this. Maybe we'll even say, um, you know, as, as, a, as a rough idea, you know, you pay, and I'm making numbers up right now, 8% royalties on what you pull out of the ground. Your choices are either you pay 10% royalties or you pay 8% royalties and the other 2% goes towards building these projects. There's, there's lots of different conceivable ways to, to pitch an idea to finance it. Why do you think it is that we didn't hear more about the, not only the economic benefits of the things that you talked about earlier on, but you know, you tell Timmy, hey, we got to build all this infrastructure. We're going to need that Weldon truck fired back up again. And you're tying back into that idea of identity of oil and gas. You're, you're putting the prospect of, of jobs that a lot of people feel like they've lost back in play. Why didn't anyone pursue that idea more during the election? Well, uh, Alex Purbe, who's the CEO of Synovus, has said that uh, building these uh, CCUS infrastructure is going to create 35,000 jobs. He said, we're, we're going to have a problem finding people to build this stuff. This is so, what I'm let, but, but let me, let's, let's sort of uh, unwrap that, uh, unpack that issue. So the, the oil sands uh, companies, which have now left CAP and created their own organization called Pathways Alliance. And the Pathways Alliance estimates that to decarbonize, like basically to get to net zero for the oil sands by 2050 will cost $75 billion. Now, I, I, you know, all you have to do is look at recent pipeline projects to know that whatever the number is, it's probably no, but... double or triple that, all right? So, but let's say $75 billion. And two thirds of that will pay for carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So that's $50 billion. So what did the oil sands companies do? They went out and they asked government, particularly the Canadian government, to give them $50 billion. Now look, if the, if the oil sands companies wanna build all the equipment on their facilities to collect uh, CO2, and if they want to build the pipeline and this and they have a project pathways alliance has a pro project where they will they will uh, uh build a big carbon uh pipeline from the 22 
oil sands projects in the north, and they'll run it down northeast Alberta, uh, down to Cold Lake, and they uh, will, that's where they'll bury and store the CO2. So you're you quite right. There's three parts to this. Capture, transport, bury, or store, whatever. And, and Alberta has already got, Alberta is one of the leading jurisdictions in the world on CCUS. Last year, uh, there were 40 megatons of CO2 captured around the world. Seven of those megatons were in, were in Alberta. Well, it's a good thing we produce so much. Yeah, we got, we got the expertise. I don't doubt that we can do it because there's lots, there's plenty of clever engineers down in, in uh, downtown Calgary that have experience already designing carbon capture and storage projects. And, and there's also the Alberta carbon trunk line, right? So we know how to do that. If, if any place in Canada can do CCUS, it's Alberta. That, that's not the problem. My problem is who pays for it? Because, and here's why. So we've talked, we've been talking about some of the debate around, well, how long will the oil sands uh, uh, be competitive? Will it be the 2030s? Will it be out to 2050 like they think it will? Will it be, what, what's, what's going, we don't know. So I asked the federal energy minister, which is the Jonathan Wilkinson, who is the minister of natural resources. I asked his office, I pestered them. And I said to them, has the government ever undertaken a modeling exercise to estimate whether or not Canadian oil and gas will be competitive out to 2050, right? So both the conventional and on the oil sand side. And I got more weaselly words than you can imagine. So I'm going to go out on a limb, and it's a very short limb, I have to tell you. And I'm going to say, that the federal government, not the National Resources Minister, not the federal government, have never seen a modeling estimate of whether the Canadian oil and gas industry can be competitive to 2050. They don't have a clue, right? Now, I'm sure they've sat across the table from CAP, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, and the various CEOs who have assured them that they have done modeling and that, hey, boys, everything's good here. We're, we're, we're fine. Don't trust us on this one. Jonathan. So it's good. What government will put $50 billion into what could be stranded assets and not even conduct a modeling exercise so that they have some idea of whether that's a good investment or not? And I've criticized the federal government for this, and they should be taken out to the woodshed and spanked for it. It's basically, this is, if they give them, they've already given them $7.1 billion in, in investment tax credits. Okay, so now then after that, when the government asked for more, they said, why don't you go talk to Danielle? Maybe it's time for Alberta to pony up a few dollars. So that's kind of where we're at, we're at now. But these deals, these taxpayers' dollars, their deals are made on the basis of politics. And I argue that, there should at least be some minimum due diligence so that Canada can say, okay, we have a moderate degree of confidence that these industries will be around in 20, 30 years. Therefore, it's worth spending us, you know, another $43 billion to help them build their, their CCS system. If you have if if they haven't, if they haven't done that, that is a dereliction of duty, in, in my opinion, and they should be harshly criticized for it. And I know they haven't done it. But that's, I mean, I want to I bring you back to the, 
the the question about the election and the the question like the provincial election and the question about potentially doing something like tying it to royalty amounts. I mean, we had a conversation with Regan Boychuk not too long ago where he talked about and sort of went through the history of so the royalties we're kind of taking a bath. We maybe maybe are giving away a bit of the farm with those things. Why not reclaim back a little bit of the farm with the commitment that whatever is reclaimed gets tied back to carbon capture and storage and putting all of those those uh, welding trucks folks back to work. Like I, to to me, not even having that conversation around something that's tied so close to the culture as as you identified of so many Albertans. I mean. That could have very easily, for either, I mean, the UCP or the NDP, to me it seems that whoever picked up the ball and ran with that and said, you know, we'll do a study, however you want to make it politically safe. Um, but we'll do a study and we'll see whether or not if we, if we designated a 2% increase in royalties to go towards carbon capture and storage to secure Alberta's future and make sure we have jobs and, 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 and. Nobody touched it. It wasn't a conversation in this election, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on why. I can tell you exactly why. When Rachel Notley was the premier from 2015 to 2019, I she there were a number of energy policies that she brought in. I mean, there was some in the climate leadership plan, like the carbon tax, the industrial emitters carbon tax. There was the petroleum incentive program to get more petrochemicals. There was the partial upgrading technology that would have freed up space it, when you're shipping bitumen. Uh, the, the, and, and I went to economists and other experts who said, look, these are good policies. In fact, Dave Collier, who was the CEO of CAP at the time, went on the record and said, yes, Rachel Notley's government has brought in very, very good energy policies. So when 2019 came around and Jason Kenney absolutely pounded her into the ground with the energy narrative, pipelines, you know, uh, pipelines, jobs, and, and uh, what was the other one? Doesn't matter. You know, that he made, he had an energy narrative and he beat her with it, beat her senseless. And she just, and she, and she lost. And, and she never talked about her policies at all. I wrote a column the day after the election that basically asked the question, why doesn't Rachel Notley talk about her energy policies? Then I got another column. I wrote another column not too long ago that, that got me blackballed by the NDP. I said, Thank Rachel you. Notley... Rachel Notley has no energy game. She doesn't want to talk about energy game, energy. She wants to talk about LGBTQ and, and education and, and all sorts of other stuff. And, and look, don't get me wrong. Those are great policies, but this is Alberta. And if you don't talk about energy, particularly in Calgary, like I lived in Calgary, everybody there understands that your personal financial boat rises and falls with the oil and gas industry. So if you want somebody's vote, you need to explain to them that here I am a competent, I, I, will, I will be competent in my management of the policy uh, and the regulation around oil and gas. And, and you can rest assured that you'll be, you'll, you'll be prosperous as a result, blah, blah, blah. They need some handholding on, on this kind of stuff. She refuses to do that. And the reason she does it is because there is nobody in her caucus that can talk energy. She can't talk energy. And all of her advisors and her campaign managers can't. Some Most of them are from Ontario and BC. They don't even know what a well looks like. So there's the problem right there, is you've got a government, you've got a party, the party that wants to run this 
this province and who refuses to run on energy policy. I've been I've been adamant and critical about the NDP about this for years. And and uh, if she if Rachel Notley runs again in 2027 and takes the same campaign strategies that she did in 2019 and 2023, she'll get lambasted again. It's just it's it's so I mean. The slogan, the, the conversation that I was having with this friend was like, it's too abstract. You can't explain it to people. Sure you can. I'm going to save oil and gas. I'm going to save the environment. I'm going to bring back your jobs and I'm going to do it by building the leading edge carbon capture, capture and storage infrastructure in the world, in Alberta. And you know what? I'm going to make the oil companies pay for it. That's, that's, no- that's, that's, that's a remarkably good elevator pitch. You know what my <laughs> elevator pitch would have been? I would, I would, I would say, and it, it kind of mirrors yours, actually. I would say there's a global energy transition. Alberta is facing an existential crisis. So I'm going to do two things. One is I'm going to take measures that will protect existing oil and gas companies and existing oil and gas jobs. So we have a suite of policies that will do that. And some of that is is uh, cleaning up liabilities and on and on. Then at the same time, I'm going to put in place policies that build this other industry that uses the feedstock, the oil and gas, particularly bitumen, as a feedstock to build, uh, to attract capital, to attract investment by, by other companies. And we're going to build a man, an, an advanced materials manufacturing. We're going to support closed loop geothermal, which uses, uh, you know, Alberta drilling techniques and technologies. We're going to build that other side of the economy and we're going to scale it up so that as this other one maybe, you know, begins to fade a little bit, our traditional approach, we build up another one to replace it. We'll be more prosperous than ever under those policies. I mean, there's even a bit there's there's even a bit where she could there's there's an opportunity to say something to the effect of I'm going to protect federal overreach by showing them how good we are at this game. Like there's so many different things that they could have done with energy. And when you take a look at the margin of votes in so many of the constituencies, like between the two percent corporate tax increase um, and and whiffing on this, like it could have been the ball game. Well, it absolutely could have. And I think that she would have done much better in Calgary had she had an energy narrative. I mean, it's an election. Remember Kim Campbell saying that elections aren't time to talk about serious issues? So what she meant by that is that in the middle of an election, you can't sit down and have a two-hour conversation about this kind of stuff the way you and I are having. That's not, but you need to have a narrative. You need to reassure voters that you're competent you have ideas. You under, First of all, you understand what's going on. In a way, Smith hasn't got a clue. Like, I know Danielle. I know Danielle. I've, I've been interviewed by her. I, I moderated a panel uh, where she was one of the members. And, and we've had conversations about this stuff over the years. Her understand, she gets, she has the buzzwords. Hydrogen. Emissions. She's got all the buzzwords, and that's where her knowledge stops. Right? And so uh, Notley had the opportunity to come in, demonstrate that she understands the severity and the gravity and what issues are at play here and has some ideas on how to cope with that and make Alberta better in the future than it is today.
It's as simple as that. And instead, she avoided the entire conversation. Does anybody remember Rachel Notley saying anything about energy at any point during the campaign? No. (laughs) Not, I don't remember once. So if you wondered why this didn't come up uh, during the election campaign, and, and if you're Danielle Smith and, you're, and your opponent doesn't bring it up, then, then you just continue the way you always do, which is Rachel Notley wants to kill. She's going to work with Justin Trudeau and, and Jagmeet Singh, and they're going to kill the Alberta oil and gas industry. And that's their narrative. And they don't have to talk about anything else because Rachel Notley didn't make them talk about anything else. That's, yeah, I still, it's just so hard for me to wrap my head around why they would, uh, you know, there's, even looking at the last 24 hours in Alberta politics, again, this is being recorded on July 11th, um, we have a premier who stood beside a guy and posed for multiple pictures who was wearing, it's not like it was subdued. Like you could look at this shirt and not realize that it's a, a satirical comment on the Canadian Energy Centre. You could get away with that. But when it's a lime- I have that t-shirt, by the way. There we go. <laughs> but when it's a lime green t-shirt with big, bold letters, it is- I mean, there's so many political scientists who have said there's no question that it was deliberate. There's no question that it was a dog whistle. Now, that's a matter of interpretation and everything. But nonetheless, we find ourselves in a conversation where we're debating whether or not the, pe- the premier posing for a picture with a guy wearing a plainly bigoted T-shirt was on purpose or just because of incompetence. And for the NDP to have left this stuff on the field just makes me go like, thanks, guys. Well, they did run on, on Smith's competence, and, and that was part of the problem. But I'm not a political science, so I don't want to talk, talk about that. Yeah, yeah, that's but, fair. But the talking about energy in the modern context, because now you can't just talk about oil and gas anymore. You have to talk about the energy transition. You have to talk about renewables, and you have to talk about electric vehicles. You have to talk about heat pump. It is complicated, Nate. I'm telling you, it is so complex and there are some smart people like uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Sarah Hastings Simons at the UC, Dr. Blake Schaefer, you know, economists like that, Dr. Andrew Leach at the University of Alberta, but there aren't many of them. And and putting together a suite of policies that that takes into account all of what's going on at the global level and then addresses that at the provincial level maintains or helps the oil and gas industry adapts, builds new industries, scales up some that if you're Rachel Notley, you don't want to, you don't want to even go there because it's just too complex. It's not her, it's not her bailiwick, not her metier. And, and I get that, but then don't be premier because you need somebody who can do it. You're not wrong. And I would argue, I mean, my perspective would be, that the the role of government, the role of premier is not to get into the nitty gritty of how you're going to do things. Like, don't tell me how you're going to do a thing. Tell me what you're going to do. And if you're competent, then you'll do you'll deal with the how part. Um, and I think that we're seeing the degree of competence from Danielle Smith shining through uh, since the election has happened. Well, look, so. I mean, uh, you know, in all fairness to Sonia Savage, I mean, when she was energy minister, uh, she, uh, smart, 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 you know, got a master's degree in, in law. 
and been in the industry for years as a pipeline lobbyist uh, primarily. So she was at least competent. I didn't agree with her very often. And I think she was, you know, but, but, you know, she was an, she was an industry uh, spokesperson, basically. And then, you know, Peter Guthrie, her successor is, I mean, nothing about energy and Brian Jean is, is even worse uh, because he's a lawyer. Guthrie was at least an engineer. And so now you've got a premier who doesn't get it. You've got a energy minister who's completely clueless. You've got an environment minister who doesn't get it. So where are these ideas coming from? Like, where, where are we supposed to generate the kind of vision, the kind of narratives, the kind of policies, the kind of conversations? Like, Ad, Ad, Alberta needs an adult conversation about the future of energy over the next 5, 10, and 20 years. And we need to have it now. Because if we before that window of opportunity that I've been talking about before it closes. And it, it, Danielle Smith is not capable of leading that conversation. Neither is Brian Jean, neither are anybody else in, in the cabinet that I could see. So that's not a pro-NDP co comment, by the way. That, that is just observable. Well, that's, that's my take on it anyway. It is, is, you know, Alberta right now is poorly governed uh, on the energy side. And the prospects of anything changing over the next four years are pretty dim. I wish I could disagree with you. Um, you're only on part two of this this series, uh, and we've knocked off almost two hours uh, just with part two and, and getting caught up to part two. I, I, I would love to be able to have you on again and a little bit farther down the road with the series, but... Um, is there anything else that you want people to hear about where you are so far in this series? Well, part one set out the argument. Part two is all about conventional oil. And it basically explains how we got to uh, where we are today and, and how bad it is today. Part three will be about the oil sands. And the oil sands, uh, like I've already done a lot of work about it, on that over the years. In fact, in 2019, I wrote a book called The New Alberta Advantage, Technology Policy and the Future of the Oil Sands. So I get, I, I'm pretty well up to speed. The oil sands is infinitely worse than conventional oil. Infinitely worse. Because the industry has no clue how it's going to reclaim those tailings ponds. It's talking about, you know, it's going to uh, go to water capping and it's going to release water into the Athabasca River, which the indigenous communities are adamant about. There are so many problems, Nate. I, there's a laundry list, a laundry list, as long as my arm, as long as both my arms, of problems in the oil sands industry. But it, nobody talks about it. Right. I mean, and, you know, everybody's up, up north and and uh, so out of sight, out, out of mind. And and uh, I'll have that done. And by the end of August, come hell or high water. So have me on in September and we'll talk about the oil sands and what a. A challenge uh, that's going to be and where the problems are, like a lot of these problems are fixable. It, it's not impossible. But, you know, there's no political will, there's no policy direction to the, to the, the regulator. The industry is very much, very influential. I'll just tell you one little story. So one, I only granted anonymity to two people, uh, two sources. Uh, one was a former cab, uh, minister of energy uh, who still, bit, you know, didn't want to be on record for obvious reasons. And the other one was a 
high level uh, uh, Alberta Energy Regulator executive who was responsible for designing data systems. And one day he wasn't on the executive committee level, which is right below the CEO, but he was invited to sit at a committee level uh, at that committee. And keep in mind, the AER is funded entirely by the by industry, right? This is an important part. So his story that he told me, uh, which I used in part one, is the AER executives are sitting there on their side of the table. Industry comes in, they sit down on the other side, they look over at whoever's chairing the meeting and they go, we pay for you. We own you. You will do what we say. That's a very, you know, a little bit of paraphrasing going on, but this is what the source told me. And to in response, the AER executives went, mm, yeah, okay. Now, I'm exaggerating a little bit, right, for effect. I mean, I'm telling a story. But this is essentially what the source told me. And I have not had anybody associated with the AR, and I've interviewed a pile of them, contradict that story. So the stuff that I'm going to tell you when we get to the oil sands will curl your toes, my friend. I mean, they're already pretty curled after tonight, but... <laughs> <laughs> I have to... I, well, I will say I've, I've got some family that have been living in, in Alberta that are going, when do you think I should uh, sell my house and move somewhere else? Yeah. Um, well, I look, uh, I, I look forward to, have, to having that conversation in September. We'll definitely have you back. Um, I will, I will have to fortify and brace myself for it. Um, if tonight is any indication, uh, but I think that these are critically important conversations to have and God willing, um, maybe somebody who's got, who's writing the scripts for either Daniel Smith or Rachel Notley, uh, maybe takes a couple of notes and go, Hey, maybe there are some easy things that we could, we could hit on because I'll, I'll, to, to your point about giving credit to Daniel Smith, um, at, at this point in the game, I don't care who doesn't suck as long as they don't suck. I'm going to tell you another story that, that will, that will, you might not sleep tonight. So earlier this year, uh, the uh, uh, Smith and her government brought out the uh, emissions reduction and energy development plan, or she called it her climate plan, right? And I was scathing in it because it's basically uh, a plan to sell more hydrocarbons, more oil and gas in order to reduce uh, uh, Alberta's emissions. It's just the goofiest uh, plan uh, you could ever imagine. But this is industry's been pushing this for for a long time. So it's essentially industry industry's plan written up on behalf of the government. So uh, I wrote this column that was quite scathing, evidence based, of course. And well, a week or two later, I got this email from a former uh, 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 chief of staff, premier's chief of staff, UCP premier's chief of staff taking me to task for this. And it was drunken gibberish. I, I assume it was a drunken uh, email because if this guy was sober while he was writing it, we're all in trouble. And, and he, and, and in it, that email, he said, I had a big hand in writing that document. And he was going on and on about the energy transition and treating me like I was five years old and condescending and stuff. And my point here 
is if this is the intellectual wattage of the people who are working in the premier's office, Alberta is screwed. I would refer you back to the 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 t-shirt situation that we're still trying to navigate in this province because it's indeed i mean there's a there's a there's a tiktoker i can't tiktok but there's a there's a tiktoker who does political commentary as well and she has an expression that i think sums up the best possible reaction to the the smith government and it's just simply every damn day <laughs> you can't you can't beat it um <laughs> That, 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 you, you've just uh, spent a day in my shoes. There we go. Every Mark. damn day. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for taking the time to chat. You've been extraordinarily generous with your time tonight. We were coming up to the two hour mark. I may very well split this into to two parts um, because I think that there's so much of this conversation that people need to hear. And there's so much information that you shared tonight that people need to hear. Um, and I want to make sure that they hear it. Uh, and I will definitely, when you get that part two, please let us know. Uh, so that we can have you back. Well, thanks, Nate. I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at political ham, uh, political with ham on the end, sort of a play on my on my name. You can find me on on Facebook uh, and in LinkedIn. I'm just by by searching my name, and I'm also on Mastodon and Threads. So I'm around. Okay. Check me out on social media. Our website is uh, energi dot media. And you'll find up in the nav bar, you'll see the unethical oil series. So you can read those. And uh, oh, and our YouTube channel, again, Energy Media, where we've got, I think, now 12 or 1300 expert interviews. So check that out. I was just going to say you, you, you opened with Twitter. It's a bold choice these days, sir. <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, man. I mean, is there a social media platform that isn't corrupted and, and a hellscape? I mean, Twitter's gotten like really bad though. And I, and, and I will say this, I'm, I'm not sure how the threads algorithm works yet. Um, I would really like to be a little bit more selective about how I'm, who I'm seeing and how I'm seeing, but boy, over the last like month, Twitter has like the, the, it, the quality has dropped. <laughs> I, I want to say a little thing, you know, one of the, th because somebody's going to go to my to my Twitter account and find some of some of my tweets, which are not a, a great reflection on my uh, public persona. And I don't take shit from anybody. And that includes, you know, these the oil bros and these and the trolls and the bots who who, you know, uh, frequent these kinds of threads and they say all sorts of horrible things and they attack you. I, I give it back as good as I get. Anybody, anybody who slides into my DM, be forewarned, because you're, you're going to get you're going to get roasted. And and as a consequence, I don't get much of it, to be honest. Oh, and you're lucky. I don't. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, the last the last week in particular has been a spectacular. Um, and it's the bots are amazing to me because like some of the word salad that these programs are kicking out, it's just like, okay, you, you included a bunch of the key hateful words there, but none of these sentences work as like sentences. It's wild. It's well, what I, what I tend to, what I tend to get is, is the, on Twitter, uh, is the guys who are, you know, working out in the field or 
you know, they, they, they feel that uh, to defend oil and Alberta oil and gas from even the slightest criticism is like a patriotic act, right? And they come in and they're really rude and, and, and obnoxious and horrible. Uh, but here's the interesting thing. On LinkedIn, I'll very often, if I, if I post a uh, political column on my LinkedIn account, I get exactly the same responses from vice presidents, CEOs, you know, people who you would think would be a little more savvy about this kind, you know, interacting, making those kind of comments in public. And yet I, I, I stay off LinkedIn for the most part because it's, 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 it's a cesspool. When you get into, if you criticize Alberta oil and gas, people in the industry will come for you and they are not much different than the bots you just described. I'm going to have to create a LinkedIn account for the show so I can post this interview just for fun then. <laughs> make sure you make sure you tag me. Will do for sure. Thank you so much for taking the time tonight, Markham. The pleasure. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case, maybe leave a, a review and a rating or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms we want to say a big thank you to everybody who is part of the breakdowns audience and as always take care of each other and keep the conversation going <laughs>